Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. All right, so before I jump back into the Old Testament, I've got good news, bad news, and interesting news. So we've been introduced to Elijah and his apprentice, Elisha, and the good news is I'm about to wrap up our section that's just been going through one lousy king after another, and then we get to dive into the life of Elisha, and stories from the prophets are always amusing. Uh, Bad news is, so last time we read about Joram, the 10th king of Israel, and now we're about to read about the king of Judah with a very similar name, Jehoram. So Joram, king of Israel, is spelled J-O-R-A-M. And the king of Judah we're about to read about, Jehoram, is J-E-H-O-R-A-M. So if that wasn't confusing enough. Uh, interesting fact is, my chronological Bible puts us at about 850 BC and gives a, a side note that from this time period, we have evidence of highly developed metal and stone sculptures in Africa. And I was, I kind of got a little bit curious. So I pulled up on Google Maps, modern day Jerusalem to Cairo, Egypt in Africa. So Cairo, Egypt in Africa to Jerusalem in Israel in the Middle East is about nine and a half hours modern day by vehicle. Just side note, just thought that was interesting. All right. So last time we read about King Joram, J-O-R-A-M, of Israel, and their war against Moab. Elisha came in, made a prophecy. Basically, there was a lot of rain, a lot of water, a lot of war. The Moabites lost, and the king of Moab, freaking out, decided to sacrifice his own son as a burnt offering. And that ended it. That ended 2 Kings chapter uh, 3, verse 27 is where we left off. Now we're kind of chronologically going, we're backing up to 1 Kings chapter 22, and I may jump into 2 Chronicles, it looks like, in this series as well. So, last time we read about the king of Israel, now we're jumping back to the kingdom of Judah. And this is a summary of Jehoshaphat's reign, who was right before Jehoram. So Jehoshaphat, oh, this is 1 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 41. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, began to rule over Judah in the fourth year of King Ahab's reign in Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother was Azubah, the daughter of Shelih. Jehoshaphat was a good king, following the example of his father, Asa. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. During his reign, however, he failed to remove all the pagan shrines, and the people still offered sacrifices and burnt incense there. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. The rest of the events in Jehoshaphat's reign 
the extent of his power in the wars he waged are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Judah. He banished, uh, he banished from the land the rest of the male and female shrine prostitutes who still continued their practices from the days of his father Asa. It says in parentheses, verse 47, there was no king in Edom at that time, only a deputy. Continuing verse 48, Jehoshaphat also built a fleet of trading ships to sail to Ophir for gold, but the ships never set sail, for they met with disaster in their home port of Ezion Geber. At one time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, had proposed to Jehoshaphat, let my men sail with your men in the ships, but Jehoshaphat refused the request. The only thing different in this parallel passage from Second Chronicles is about those ships in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 35, it reads, Sometime later, King Jehoshaphat of Judah made an alliance with King Ahaziah of Israel, who was very wicked. Together, they built a fleet of trading ships at the port of Ezion-Geber. The then Eliezer, son of Dodava from Meresha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat. He said, Because you have allied yourself with King Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy your work. So the ships met with disaster and never put out to sea. So that's kind of interesting because he partnered with King Ahaziah of Israel, who was wicked because he established an alliance and then together they built this whole fleet of trading ships. That's why the trading ships were destroyed. However, from the first King's passage, it says that at one time after they had built these trading ships together, Ahaziah wanted his men to set sail in the ships and Jehoshaphat said no and then all the ships were destroyed so Ahaziah might have felt a little relief that his request had been rejected because then his men were spared the wicked king's men were spared and Jehoshaphat's ships were destroyed because of having partnered with that wicked king so Wrap your brain around that one. All right, we're moving on. When Jehoshaphat died, he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Then his son, Jehoram, became the next king. I'm going to jump over to the parallel passage here in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, 1 through 4. It starts off the same. When Jehoshaphat died, he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Then his son, Jehoram, became the next king. Jehoram's brothers, the other sons of Jehoshaphat, were... Oh, bless me. Here we go. Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, who, Michael, and Shef Shepatiah. <laughs> All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Their father had given each of them valuable gifts of silver, gold, and costly items, and also some of Judah's fortified towns. However, he designated Jehoram as the next king because he was the oldest. But when Jehoram had become solidly established as king, he killed all his brothers and some of the other leaders of Judah. So his father was somewhat decent and then eldest son comes along and kills all of his uh, brothers. Fabulous. Okay, so Second Chronicles reported that Jehoram became king and slaughtered all of his brothers. Second Kings chapter 8 verse 16 says Jehoram son of King Jehoshaphat of Judah became 
uh, began to rule over Judah in the fifth year of the reign of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. But Jehoram followed the example of the kings of Israel and was wicked as King Ahab, for he had married one of Ahab's daughters. So Jehoram did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So you see how these two authors of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles had different priorities. <laughs> One highlighted he had murdered all of his brothers, and the other highlighted that he married the wrong woman. Mm -hmm. Verse 19, But the Lord did not want to destroy Judah, for he had made a covenant with David and promised that his descendants would continue to rule, shining like a lamp forever. During Jehoram's reign, the Edomites revolted against Judah and crowned their own king. So Jehoram went with all his chariots to attack the town of Zer. Of course he did. If he's going to kill his own brothers, he has no issue attacking an entire town. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he went out at night and attacked them under cover of darkness. Of course he did. But Jehoram's army deserted him and fled to their homes. Eh, karma. Or <laughs> God is justice. So Edom has been independent from Judah to this day. The town of Libna also revolted about that same time. All right, so in the Second Chronicles parallel version, they also mentioned his choice of wife uh, from marrying one of the daughters of Ahab, but it goes on about these towns. Uh, let's see, Second Chronicles 21, I'll back up to verse 10. Edom has been independent from Judah to this day. The town of Libna also revolted about the same time. All this happened because Jehoram had abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors. He had built pagan shrines in the hill country of Judah, and he had led the people of Jerusalem and Judah to give themselves to pagan gods and to go astray. And marrying Ahab's daughter would have been part of that because of the pagan gods. Then Elijah, the prophet, wrote Jehoram this letter. Quote, This is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, says. You have not followed the good example of your father Jehoshaphat or your grandfather King Asa of Judah. Instead, you have been as evil as the kings of Israel. You have led the people of Jerusalem and Judah to worship idols, just as King Ahab did in Israel. And you have even killed your own brothers, men who were better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike you, your people, your children, your wives, and all that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will suffer with a severe intestinal disease that will get worse each day until your bowels come out. Ugh. That's the end of the letter. Verse 16, then the Lord stirred up the Philistines and the Arabs who lived near the Ethiopians, Ethiopians to attack Jehoram. They marched against Judah, broke down its defenses, and carried away everything of value in the royal palace, thus fulfilling part of that prophecy, including the king's son, sons and his wives. Only his youngest son, Ahaziah, was spared. All right. Well, when we continue on to Second Kings chapter 2, Next time is when Elijah is taken into heaven. So this was one of his final acts as a prophet, as a prophet 
is to write this letter to King Jehoram of Judah. All right, I'm going to read this one comment about Jehoram. Uh, this is commenting on 2 Chronicles 21, 8 through 11. It says, Jehoram's reign was marked by sin and cruelty. He married a woman who worshipped idols. He killed his six brothers. He allowed and even promoted idol worship. Yet he was not killed in battle or by treachery. He died by a lingering and painful disease. Punishment for sin is not always immediate or dramatic. But if we ignore God's laws, we will eventually suffer the consequences of our sin. You know, in today's day and age, I think some people, I have a certain person who comes to mind from way back in the day, felt like, why aren't the people that he saw as um, wicked, who had done him wrong, why aren't they getting punished? Why are they going on and living happy, healthy, wealthy lives? And you know, A, you got to remember, the world isn't made up of completely good and completely wicked people. People do change. People have their worst moments and their best moments. But also, it's not our place to bring punishment on other people. Sometimes it'll happen later, but God is the judge and we're not for a reason. Of course, we have our legal judicial system where that applies, but it doesn't always. In this king's case, it says, uh, Elijah prophesied that uh, you yourself will suffer a severe intestinal disease. It will get worse each day until your bowels come out. And just out of curiosity, I can't help but wonder what that might have been diagnosed as today. You know, I mean, it could be as some, something like hemorrhoids. <laughs> In this time period, a severe case could be deadly without any kind of treatment or surgery. Right? I have no idea. But maybe that was it. In the New Testament, we are in the book of Romans, about halfway through chapter 2. Chapter 1 included his, uh, Paul's greetings, a bit about the good news, which he was committed to preaching, both to Jews and Gentiles, a section on God's anger at sin, and then God's judgment of sin. So now we're picking up in chapter 2, verse 17. This subheading is the Jews and the law. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right, because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then... If you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? 
You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, quote, the Gentiles blasphemy the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law, but if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. I'm going to keep reading in chapter 3. God remains faithful. That's when the advantage of, uh, when, excuse me, <laughs> then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar... God is true. As the scriptures say about him, quote, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win with you, win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? In parentheses, this is merely a human point of view. Verse six, of course not. If God were not merely fair, if, if God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as the scriptures say. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. I know that seems like a damper place to uh, stop, but the next section is about how Christ took our punishment. So I'm going to start with that next time. Oh, so I told you Romans was hard. I'm going to read this one comment. 
on verse uh, 17, you who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. Comment says, Paul continues to argue that all stand guilty before God. After describing the fate of the unbelieving pagan Gentiles, he moves to admonish God's people. Despite their knowledge of God's will, they were guilty because they too refused to live by it. Those of us who have grown up in Christian families may know what God's word says, but Paul says that if we do not live up to what we know, we are no better off than unbelievers. So, obviously I've got some of that in my life where I know what I need to do or who I should be or how I feel like a quote-unquote good Christian should act. And that's certainly not me all of the time. <laughs> Especially if I haven't slept well and I get grouchy. I'm not exactly the most uh, compassionate, loving, and humble person but also what came to mind for me when I read that is um, how in American culture, some Christians idolize guns, right? Even though Jesus was so uh, nonviolent, right? Jesus was all about nonviolence. And then you contrast that with the Old Testament and you read God ordering a lot of violence. But I think where people go wrong is they might see God doing it in scripture and think, well, if God can do it, I can do it. No. Like you see how dangerous that can get, right? Jesus, yes, he was of God, son of God, God three in one, but he came and modeled how we should behave. And leave God to be the judge. There's this song. I might mispronounce the name of their group. Gunger? Gunger? I'm, I'm afraid I've probably mispronounced that twice. But they have this song called God and Country. And it's one of those songs. It could probably be interpreted a few different ways depending on the listener which I love songs like that. I, I love it when it's open to um, being interpreted by what's going on in a person's life. But this one in particular, one of the last choruses, it says, God, we love our God. Oh God, we love our guns. Something, something for our fathers and our sons. Those who live by the gun, live by the gun, die by the gun. And I think of that sometimes when I see Christians who are very much advocates of such a violent um, weapon, treating it like an idol. God, we love our God. God, we love our guns. And it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Anyway. Paul says, if we know what is right and we don't live up to it, we're no better off than unbelievers. Are we living in some sort of hypocrisy? 
All right, here's another comment on verse 21 to 22, which reads, Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? Comment reads, Paul explained to the Jews that they needed to teach themselves, not others, by their law. They knew the law so well that they had learned how to excuse their own actions while criticizing others. But the law is more than a set of rules. It is a guideline for living according to God's will. It is also a reminder that we cannot please God without a proper relationship to him. As he just pointed out, withholding what rightfully belongs to someone else is stealing, and anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has committed adultery with his uh, with her in his heart. Before we accuse others, we must look at ourselves and see if sin in any form exists within us. For me, I think the thing I struggle with there is a balance and defensiveness, right? Like, I get very fed up with other people's opinions constantly being thrown out, opinions about my outfit or my words or my actions. And on one hand, you cannot constantly live your life at the whim of other people's opinions. Because in today's day and age, everybody thinks everybody wants to hear their opinion. And it's just too much, too much. It's exhausting, right? Like for the sake of our own mental health, we need some boundaries, correct? At the same time, uh, you, you don't want to err on the other side of arrogance, right? Just because it might be coming from a person whose opinion doesn't really matter to you doesn't mean they're wrong. You don't want to miss an opportunity for growth. At the same time, you can't psychoanalyze yourself over every little criticism because people want to voice a criticism of everything. So that's sometimes a struggle with me. Good days and bad days. Some days I might err on the side of, I don't care what anybody else says, and my error is on the side of arrogance um, or pride. And then other days I'll err on the side of uh, low self-esteem, right? And gosh, I do have so much work to do as a person and not doing things right, whatever. And it can be hard to live your life guided by God's will and those things where it's not so much an issue of figuring out what God's will is in that moment so much as how you process what's going on around you. And then do what with it. Alright, here's another comment on chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, which is um, Paul's quote. No one is righteous, not even one, etc., etc. It says, Paul's referring to Psalm 14, 1 through 3. No one is righteous means no one is innocent. Every person is valuable in God's eyes because God created us in his image and he loves us. And by the way, God doesn't make mistakes. But no one is good enough, that is, no one can earn right standing with God. 
though we are valuable, we have fallen into sin. But God, through Jesus his Son, has redeemed us and offers to forgive us if we turn to him in faith. I heard someone say once that what makes Christianity unique, and I don't know that she had any authority to say that because <laughs> you'd have to uh, you'd have to be quite familiar with every single religion on the planet to say that this is what makes Christianity unique, but I still like what follows. Um, is that there is no standard of good enough or standard standard of perfection to have to achieve in order to earn whatever. You just do your best. And it is Jesus, through his sacrifice, that forgives our sins, essentially removing everything that is imperfect. Removing all of the sin, removing all of the mistakes, removing all the guilt, so that all that is left, all that remains, is perfection. It's only achieved through him. Okay, we're almost done. One and a half more I want to read here. Paul uses these Old Testament references to show that humanity in general in its present sinful condition is unacceptable before God. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I'm not too bad. I'm a pretty good person. Look at these verses and see if any of them apply to you. Have you ever lied? Are you bitter toward anyone? Do you become angry with those who strongly disagree with you? Mm. I used to say I think everybody's addicted to something and some people are addicted to being right. In thought, word, and deed, you, like everyone else in the world, stand guilty before God. We must remember who we are in his sight. Alienated sinners, don't deny that you are a sinner. Instead, allow your desperate need to point you toward Christ. Because remember, Christ takes away all that sin and that's what makes us perfect. But like Paul says here, just because Christ takes away our sin is an excuse to go on doing whatever we want. Like, ha, see, Christ will take care of it. Or see how glorious God is because I can't be perfect. I'll just keep sinning and think that that glorifies, makes God look better in some way. Paul's like, and that's ridiculous. No, we still try to live our best, glorifying God by being who he made us to be in that potential. And then I'll read half of this next comment. The last time, uh, the last time someone accused you of wrongdoing, what was your reaction? Denial, argument, and defensiveness? When I read that, I was like, oh man, they know me. <laughs> the entire world will be silent before God. No excuses or arguments will remain. Mm. I look forward to that day. <music>